When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kia ora and welcome to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espiner. We're talking with New Zealand and international experts looking at how our world will change in the wake of COVID-19. How we live, how we work, how we govern ourselves, the future of our economies, of our health systems and of our environment. In this episode, we are talking about the environment. The flights, the factories, the cars pretty much stopped as the world went into lockdown as a result of the pandemic. We've all seen the pictures of the tourist spots being reclaimed by nature. But does that mask the trouble to come? How will a world eager for economic recovery manage its environment? And can we now treat climate change with the same urgency that we've felt in trying to manage COVID-19? I'm joined from Costa Rica by Cristiana Figueres. She was the United Nations climate chief heading the negotiations which led to the Paris Accord in 2015. Since then, she's continued to push for an accelerated response to climate change with initiatives including Mission 2020 and Global Optimism, which includes the popular climate change podcast Outrage and Optimism. Simon Upton is also with us. Simon Upton is currently New Zealand's Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of New Zealand and a Rhodes Scholar. Simon Upton was a National Party MP between 1981 and 1999 and spent nine years as Environment Minister. After politics, he moved to Paris to chair the Roundtable on Sustainable Development at the OECD. Our third guest for this Environment episode is Akim Steiner. Now, Akim is currently the administrator for the UN Development Programme and he joins us from New York. Before his current role, he was executive director of the UN Environment Programme between 2006 and 2016, and he's also served as director general of the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Now, let's start with the immediate impact of this, and I'm going to come to you first. Christiana Figueres, this must be the biggest carbon crash ever, mustn't it? It is indeed, and uh, we've, obviously we will only know until after we finish the year, but the projections that we have already seen from very credible institutions tell us that the carbon emission drops, or rather the equivalent of all, uh, all greenhouse gases, are going to be all the way up there, perhaps even to 8% drop with respect to last year. Um, that is sizable. That we have never done that, ever. Um, and it is higher than the drops that are being recommended by science as a yearly reduction if we were on a path 
of constant descent from where we are now to 2030 um, and to be able to get to one half of emissions. That is the path that science recommends in order to avoid getting to very dangerous tipping points. Getting to 2030, um, having halved our emissions, having cut our emissions to 50%, and the annualized, that is 7.6%. So the fact that we may have an 8% drop this year is uh, actually very surprising to everyone um, and cannot be good news. It is not good news because the drop in emissions has come at a very, very high human cost. We have lost thousands of lives. We have lost millions of livelihoods. That is not the way we are planning on decarbonizing the economy. In fact, quite to the contrary. The responsible decarbonization of the economy has to be a drop in emissions and an increase in the quality of life of human population. So this is almost getting to the right destination with the, absolutely the wrong path. This is an unintended consequence and cannot be used as a model. Now, of course, the bigger question is which of the practices that we are currently engaged in, less travel, both air travel and, um, and land travel, will those be sticky? And I'm very much hoping that many of them will be sticky and will help us to manage the descent of greenhouse gases in a much more orderly way and for economic benefit and uh, for society to thrive rather than for the economy to become paralyzed. Akeem, if we are seeing those kinds of drops, uh, Christiana mentioned about 8%, people have been predicting anywhere between sort of 6 and 8%. I, I saw an analysis uh, the other day saying that it's like taking out India um, for, for a year. So they are obviously uh, big drops. We're getting most of that drop, are we, from what? The cessation of land transport? I know that um, aviation is, is a factor, but I guess land transport would be, would be the biggest factor, would it? Well, it's a composite because uh, while we use a lot of coal still to produce electricity and not all electricity production has ceased, but as factories close, a very significant part of global demand for electricity has obviously shrunk to a level that none of us, I think, had foreseen in our lifetimes. At the same time, oil is still the fundamental fuel for mobility and transport. Since no airplanes are virtually flying anymore, since also cars are in many parts of the world off the streets, it is a combination of that. And so fossil fuel consumption associated with the emissions is obviously something that is a consequence of the shutdown. But as Christiana said, let us not be in any way tempted by this scenario because this has nothing to do with the transition towards a low carbon economy. This is a shutdown. It is an economic disaster. It is on the back of a health disaster. And I think the real question will be, can we recover, first of all, in a sense from the economic fallout, get the virus under control, but in so doing, sow the seeds of an accelerated transition towards a low carbon economy. And that will be the question for the next few years that will be at the center of everyone who is thinking about what will happen next. Uh, Simon, perhaps you can answer that for us. Well, for me, <clears throat> COVID isn't 
the the crisis. It's the it's the vulnerabilities that shown us which uh, are really the concern. I'm confident that uh, with all of the the brilliant intellectual and technical capacity that we have built over the last few generations, that if we use that, we can find a solution to this particular problem. And that's the good side of the globalization and the civilization that we've built. But what this crisis, I think, has shown us is that the capacity for trust uh, and for cooperation has been found wanting, both within countries and between countries. And this won't be the last such crisis that we face. I mean, it's interesting to ask the question, could we now face another global crisis on top of this one? Could we fa face two? Now, in, a, in my country, we live in constant risk of uh, natural hazard, earthquakes. Uh, these are completely random. Uh, you could have weather events. Uh, we've managed, as a first world country, to handle one of these at a time. But imagine two, and then imagine two at the global level. And I think what this crisis is telling us that we're a very leveraged civilization. We have built something which is actually quite vulnerable. And the test is one of human institutions. And I think that is really the thing that we have to think about because we will not be able to bring about the, the, the planned, careful, sensible approach to decarbonization, which Christiana is talking about. We can't go through one like this. If we want to get there, it will require maximum cooperation. It will require governments and institutions which people trust in. And I think that is the Achilles heel that I'm seeing uh, become visible now. And Christiana, you're saying that these are the kind of reductions that we would need to see, but obviously we want to see them in a way that doesn't shut our economies down. And you talked um, about the stickability of some of these things. Will we change uh, the way we f fly and, and drive and manage our cities? Do you think that that is likely? How do we get these sort of reductions without the sort of calamitous uh, um, approach that we've had to take, been forced to take with this pandemic? Well, I, I think um, that really depends on how we're able to understand the situation that we're in. Because while I totally agree with Simon that we're now dealing with this one acute crisis, the other way of looking at it is that we're actually dealing with several coterminous crises at the same time. It just happens that one is acute and the others are chronic. But we have the health crisis, which is acute, and then we have the climate crisis, which is chronic, did not creep up on us at all. We've known for decades that it's there. We have the inequality crisis that is there and has become much, much worse over the past five years. Um, and we definitely, at the same time, had the acute um, oil price crisis. So, you know, if, if you look at it that way, you can see that we have uh, four global crises that collided with each other at the same time. And I, I would agree with Simon that it's very difficult to deal with these crises sequentially. We actually have to understand that these crises have collided upon us and therefore we have to converge the solutions. 
we have to be able to find uh, policies, measures, um, injections of capital in particular that answer and address all of these crises at the same time because sequentially addressing them will only get us out of one frying pan and into a raging fire. Certainly understanding the context of human pain in which we're working right now. But let me, let me use a different word, the responsibility, which is a better word than opportunity. The responsibility here is to use the um, recovery packages that will definitely be somewhere between 10 and 20 trillion dollars that we might have worldwide in recovery in fresh capital that is going to be injected into the economy at a huge indebtedness for governments and hence governments will not be able to redo that effort anytime soon but let us take advantage of this forced indebtedness that governments are going to engage in and ensure that those recoveries are clean, that they're green, that they lead to more social um, inclusion, and that they're long-term, and that they actually build the health resilience of both humans and planet. Has this brought us any time? I mean, put it in context. No. No, I think to the contrary. I think what, what COVID has done is put climate change and the other crisis, certainly the inequality crisis, on a time warp. It's almost like we thought we had somewhere between one and 10 years. We thought this was the decisive decade for climate change and for biodiversity loss, by the way, the other global crisis. Um, no, forget it. This is it. All those 10 years that we thought we had have now been shrunk into basically, I would say, anywhere between three to 18 months, c'est tout. Because by the end of those 18 months, all the decisions, and in fact, most of the allocations of the recovery packages will have been made. And therefore, this is an irreversible T-junction that we're at. Either we go down the path of recovery that is regenerative in all of its ramifications, or we go down the path of a recovery that is only going to be temporal, temporal, and that will explode in our faces very soon after that. So that's it. Wow, um, Akeem, uh, Simon, I'd like both your thoughts. That's a remarkable statement, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're agreeing with that, 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 that there's something like a, a three to 18 month window. Well, disagreeing with Christiana always comes at a great cost, so I would never do that. In fact, I would um, take the, the analogy one step further. It's responsibility. But I think what is perhaps the most empowering part is that people are now focused on choices, choices that we can either make or not make. First of all, the, the notion that we somehow need to recover into the economy of yesterday. Is that really a proposition that you know common sense would lead us to believe in? No, it is not. It is basically the economy of yesterday, that already had many underlying conditions. And just look at inequality, Christiana just referred to it. The last two, three years have been full of people stepping out onto the streets from Hong Kong to Beirut to Paris to Santiago de Chile, basically questioning the fairness of the model. And we saw Fridays for Future and the climate movement and many others also questioning the kind of economy and the paradigm of economics that has driven us to where we are. And clearly for a couple of hundred years, it worked in the sense that economic growth always created a bigger pie. But we've now reached the point that Christiana so clearly illustrated that our life support systems in the atmosphere and the biosphere 
are at a point where we are literally killing the very foundations of life on planet Earth. And that is why economics also has to evolve. And I want to go one step further and say, it is multiple crises, but it is also the moment where we have to begin to manage our economies and societies analogous to the planet, which is a systems approach. We live in ecosystems, and our economies are also not some isolated um, you know, platform on which we operate and the rest of the world somehow continues. No, we have found ourselves increasingly questioning, first of all, the growth paradigm. Is measuring progress with per capita GDP really something we want to continue? Most of us know it's inaccurate. We know we need to change. Secondly, should in our economies, for example, the benefits always accrue to the private sector and be privatized and all the costs be borne by the public and socialized, which is really the equation of much of the environmental cleanup of the last 20 to 30 years. And thirdly, can we continue to address an economy in which all that nature produces every day is essentially in fiscal terms not visible because it is not priced and therefore anything that's priced at zero is not worth protecting. You can lose it and your illusion is that you haven't lost anything. So I want to plead very strongly for an understanding that this is a moment of choice. We can evolve economics. It's not a law of physics that defines economics. It's the law of choices that we make. And I think this is a moment where people across the world do not need persuading that we have problems. What they need convincing is that we can actually have the freedom and the capacity to make wiser choices. And I think COVID-19 is one of those historical moments where crisis and introspection can either lead you into a sort of reflex reaction or we begin to envisage and imagine an economy that we actually want to live in and that is perfectly doable. And I think this is the great opportunity. And as Christiana said, we haven't gained any time. We've maybe gained 12 months in terms of a reduced emissions part. But just remember what happened after the financial crisis. We ended up with more emissions. So clearly relying on the traditional instruments of running our economies will not produce the kind of economy in which the cost of pollution and of destruction of nature begins to drive the choices that we make. And I think this is going to be the central debate that will, in every parliament, in every uh, family home, but also in every business, drive decision-making over the coming years. Simon Upton, um, you, you heard uh, Christiana uh, talk about it as a, as a T-junction, a fork in the road might be another way to look at it, but do you see it in those terms? Do you see well, it as a fork in the road? Well, I, I was just going to say, I, uh, I, I think that one doesn't want to look at this purely through the eyes of what will governments do? You know, they're going to take on this debt, so they're going to take on the right debt for the right projects, or they're going to do it the wrong way. I mean, that is hugely important. I'm not suggesting that that isn't, but uh, this has created a moment where a lot of people, not just governments, are being forced to think about it. One of the problems those of us who've worked with environmental issues for years have had is that we've been talking about something out in the future, that climate, it's something out in the future. And yes, of course, we can see signs of it, but the sense of crisis in lots of people's minds, not the, not the minds of this enlightened group discussing today, but a lot of people just down the road from me in the village where I live, it's, that's not immediate. Now, suddenly something's happened, which has caused a whole lot of people to think about the situation in which they find themselves. And I'd just like to suggest to you that whether you're in business or whether you're a consumer or whether you are a citizen, you are being forced to think in a way you've never been forced to think before. So I think governments may have an opportunity they haven't had before. 
We take something like tourism, which is a very big industry in my country. It has simply stopped. It's not just gone down 8%. It's stopped. And the international side is likely to be stopped for some very considerable time. Now, that creates a window which no one in that industry can avoid. They have to think about what it will be like. And they won't determine that alone because think about the consumers. Everybody who used to think, oh, I'll jump on a plane to go to somewhere or I'll go on a cruise, are going to think again about is that actually the sort of holidaying that I feel comfortable with still? And then, as Akim says, the social consequences of where we've got to. There are a lot of people at home actually asking questions they haven't asked before. So I don't think it's bought us time in an ecological sense, but in a human sense, it has bought us, if you like, an enforced space where we are forced to reflect, where we are forced to actually be honest with ourselves for the first time for a little while. So in that, I would see there is hope. But it brings me back to this question. All right, if you're all doing all of this thinking and soul searching, do you trust the people who are going to be proposing a way out of this? That seems to me the challenge. If we're looking at the recovery packages, if we have got investments back into high carbon industries and an effort to try and create the world as we knew it um, before 2020, then that's going to uh, lock us into that trajectory, which leads to warming of above one and a half, two degrees, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. And, th and that's why, you know, we are so concerned and there's so much advocacy on the part of uh, economists and on the part of all kinds of thought leaders precisely to avoid that. Because once you have 10 to 20 trillion dollars that go in to um, buoy up industries and sectors that were already on the decline um, and now would be quote unquote artificially buoyed up, then uh, we would be locked into the corresponding emissions of those industries and those sectors for decades to come. And then we can really kiss goodbye to any target of, uh, of, of two, staying under two degrees and certainly of, uh, of getting close to 1.5 degrees. Let's just take one of those industries, Akeem, aviation, which is uh, essential to New Zealand uh, geographically. But the, the, the recovery packages for the aviation industry are attempting to get them back to where they were. Do you think that those sorts of packages should come with strings attached, with climate change mitigation strings attached, if you like? Well, first of all, it is a, a tragedy of the moment, but one that in some respects could have been foreseen already for a number of years. I and mean, in my previous capacity as head of the United Nations Environment Program, we engaged with airlines 10 years ago to try and make them much more active as looking for alternative ways in which to address their carbon footprint. Their argument initially was, oh, we're only one to 2%. Well, everybody can claim that in one form or another. Fact of the matter is air travel was increasing. What we've now seen the last few weeks is in a sense, a very volatile industry suddenly finding itself in a situation where Avianca in Colombia, South African Airways in South Africa, uh, Virgin in Australia, 
and other airlines are very quickly at the point where the taxpayer is the only viable option for actually keeping them going. Now, you might say, well, this is nothing to do with climate change and um, uh, low carbon pathways, but actually, if the public now steps in to stabilize an industry that was very happy to earn revenues while it could as private companies, but now when it suddenly has an existential challenge, the taxpayer is asked to step in. And I think we are seeing in negotiations in Austria and Germany, I'm sure the debate in New Zealand and other countries will be, look, these packages that are now being put together to rescue large companies will have to face two tests. First of all, what is the cost of helping an airline to stay afloat versus using that money to deal with perhaps hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have lost their jobs? And the second one is, well, if we are stepping into saving an industry that essentially in climate change terms is in its intransigence, and not to deny that airlines have been trying to increase fuel efficiency and so on, but as part of the problem of the 20th century legacy of transport in our world, if that industry is not willing to now take a big leap forward and become part of tomorrow's economy, then I think it does raise in many people's minds the question, should we actually be providing those packages? It's a real dilemma. It's not easily resolved. But what I, again, would like to emphasize is we're not talking about changing the world overnight. But we've spent the last 20, 30 years debating about the importance of addressing climate change. Well, the time has finally come, as Christiana has said. Now it is about action, and it is about acting into that economy of tomorrow. And in that, I think air travel will never be the same. Okay, Simon Upton, I mean, international tourism for New Zealand, um, expenditure from it accounted for 20% of our total exports and about 42% of total tourism spending. In other words, it's a big deal for the New Zealand economy. It has been. You've been in politics a long time too. I mean, this is going to be an extremely tough thing to resolve and a huge challenge for New Zealand, isn't it? Yes, it is a huge challenge, uh, but when you mentioned that 42% figure, that means that over 50 is also domestic. And, and this is really where we start from. Uh, New Zealanders, I think like many people around the world, will start to rediscover their own country. This is a, as we break out of where we are, cautiously, I hope, and, and, and carefully, then it's moving in your own country that is first going to be the easiest thing to do. That will immediately cause a lot of people to think about what what do I want from tourism? What do I think about in terms of holidays? So we've been forced to recalibrate our expectations as consumers, as, as citizens. Similarly, the industry uh, here uh, knows there aren't going to be floods of overseas people in the next 12 or 18 months. So they're going to recalibrate their offering. Now, that really is a chance to rethink what it is we're trying to provide through tourism. Is this just some uh, mass consumption industry uh, where you try and, and reap a few dollars from everybody who walks past? Or is tourism something which is a, a more thoughtful and reflective engagement with a culture and a people? Now, all of those conversations are going on in New Zealand right now. And uh, my, my colleagues from overseas may be interested to know I've just completed a major study of tourism in New Zealand. And we identified uh, quite a large number of environmental pressures that were in some cases visibly, but in some cases invisibly being imposed by the industry and suggested that it really needed to think about these. And they're not all to do with climate change. Uh, there's things like solid waste. There's the claims that are put on infrastructure. There's the loss 
of isolation, solitude. New Zealand is a country which is selling um, a very special uh, environment and in some places a very unspoiled environment. Uh, Christiana comes from a country which has much of this as well. You put too many people into those special places and they cease to have the qualities that they had. <clears throat> the same applies in historic cities and towns through Europe like, like Venice. So it's a chance <clears throat> to reconsider whether we want to mortgage all of those qualities that we had come to mortgage. I think the aviation one you mentioned is though the really intractable one and for the international side of the industry this is almost existential. Even before COVID came along we were seeing the beginnings of something called flight shame, Fliegskam, uh, where at least in Scandinavia uh, there was an increasing questioning of whether people wanted to travel so far for so long. And I don't think that's going to go away. I don't think that's just a scandic foible. I think that uh, an increasing number of global citizens are thinking about those issues. So airlines know that they have a problem there. Now they, can, they have a choice. They can either say, let's find some parts of the world where those enlightened views haven't taken root and we'll go and market ourselves to them. Or, as Achim says, they can think proactively about what the future might look like. Uh, and I have to say, I don't think alternative fuels are the answer. They may help in the short run. And I'm sure we can electrify short run, uh, small uh, planes. I think the, at this point, you have to be honest and say, we do not have a solution for long haul travel. You're listening to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espiner. We're talking to New Zealand and international experts looking at how our world will change in the wake of COVID-19. Could I just um, add to, to this interesting discussion that it might be helpful to um, divide um, air travel uh, between business travel and tourism for pleasure. Uh, because I think the speed of transformation is going to be different uh, between those two. My sense is that business travel has been forever deeply transformed because, um, you know, there are, I don't know how many of us, two, four, six of us, or maybe some more um, on this Zoom call. And, um, and I don't know how many Zoom calls we've all done in the past two months, but honestly, we've all become much more familiar with these technologies than we were just two months ago. And um, I am sure that uh, most people, if not all, who used to travel three times around the planet for a meeting of two hours, and I include myself there, um, will say, wait a minute, that's no longer necessary. Uh, I, you know, I've become much more fluent with these technologies, and, um, and actually by the time I figure out my personal health impact, the financial cost of the flight, the emissions cost of the flight, um, and I compare that to the very 
marginal additional value that it would have if I fly all the way over to wherever to a business meeting I don't think those two things are going to be equivalent I think most people are going to admit mm -hmm. that um, you know a non-presence or a virtual presence a non-physical presence a virtual presence in a meeting is not quite the same but it does not justify getting on a plane and uh, so I think a lot of work travel is actually going to be cut down. I know that all of these companies, Zoom included, and we're on Zoom now, the value of Zoom is actually today much higher on the, on the, on the financial market than many airlines. Um, and they're all investing into better technologies. I spoke yesterday to the CEO of the largest event organizing company of the world. Uh, they bring together regular 27,000 people every three months uh, and and they are investing incredibly into how are they going to do those summits that they use 27,000 people how are they going to do all of that virtually so you know I think this is just an incredible transformation that we're going to see but you know I think tourism and especially ecotourism tourism for nature enjoyment and nature experience purposes I think is a completely different bucket, completely different because, you know, you do not experience the magnificence of a coral reef if you do that virtually. You do not, you know, I mean, you, you don't walk and I'm right here, right next to the largest national park in Costa Rica. You do not walk through Corcovado Park and see the tapirs that I just saw yesterday. If you do that virtually, I mean, you can, you can see a photograph of them, but it's not the same. But anyway, I, I think it's just, important to differentiate two very different kinds of well it's funny you, you do that because I, that's that's where i was going anyway um so thank you for that i was i mean since we've got you know leaders of the un and oecd um, past and former uh, past and present um are these huge international organizations going to be using zoom calls um Simon, I think you oh, were look, telling look, me. Look, I've been talking to my, my former colleagues at the OECD, and they say that they'll never be going back to having meetings the way they used to have them, uh, because it just works so well. And let me tell you, um, uh, countries that are a long way away, like New Zealand, have always dragged their feet on turning up to meetings because it's extremely expensive, and it, it was expensive. And also, you know, 24 hours travel and so on and so forth, and you ask me to fly halfway around the world for this. All of that's gone. Uh, and you can now say to countries, um, listen, you've got no excuse. Don't, don't tell me about the cost all the time or whatever. <laughs> you, it's very easy for you to participate. So this is a real, a real silver lining, I think, that we are going to see uh, much better engagement uh, in these international processes because they don't involve this vast sort of caravansary of people turning up and, 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 you know, airports and conference centers and the huge cost associated with it. I think we can strip a great deal of that out. Can I just go back to Christiane's point about ecotourism though? I, I, she's right that ecotourism is obviously, if it's genuinely eco, is going to have a much lower footprint. And it's also very important for an increasingly urbanized population to see the real yes. world. The but I'd make, I'd make this point, though, that if indeed you've knocked out a large tranche of business travel, and if indeed we're doing what we need to do with carbon prices, I think the cost of travel is going to be much, much more expensive. So if it's much more expensive, 
you will travel less, but you might stay for longer, which is why, again, I think thinking about a very different sort of offering, a very different sort of offering. And let's be frank, there are large operators out there right now who have got massively stranded assets in huge hotels, huge centers, huge airlines, huge you know, wide-bodied planes. Their incentive is to fill those. They just want volume and volume may not come back. So there is a real adjustment issue there for that part of the industry. Uh, Akeem, um, how do you see that adjustment playing out? Let me put it also in terms of, you know, we, we, every country is different. Obviously, if you take the Maldives right now, the fact that no tourists are arriving means that the economy has ceased to exist. So we also need to take account, just like you spoke about New Zealand's dependence on long distance travel, what we're looking for is essentially decarbonization strategies. They're never a singular sector matter. And that is partly where countries need to construct their own carbon footprint. And that's why the Paris Accord was so important. It provided a voluntary, nationally determined way of assessing how you would lower your carbon footprint in the context of a global um, commitment that every country would adhere to and then people will argue well the united states is not participating well it's one out of 193 countries the other 192 are moving forward and again here i would say let's look at the economics of this it's not just one sector energy we were told for 30 years renewables don't exist it's science fiction they're too expensive you can't run a national grid on it it'll be the end of competitiveness look at some of the most successful countries that have deployed renewable energy in recent years. Denmark approaching almost 50% of its electricity production now with renewables. Germany getting close to 40%. Two of the most successful economies in the last 15 years worldwide, exporting, very sensitive to competitiveness in terms of their pricing. China for different reasons. India now going massively into renewables. Even the United States actually had invested very significantly. So, here is one sector, electricity, then there is transport, then there is cities, then there is air travel, there is cement manufacturing. Let us also take into account that countries must drive their economies towards low carbon futures at different paces in different sectors, but the overall carbon footprint has to come down. And that is another, let's say, variable of being able to optimize these strategies. But above all, what is quite clear, whether you look at for instance, uh, a report just released by Oxford University last week that looked at the green stimulus packages after the financial crisis. They looked at 700 different measures. And I was part of a group that called for a global Green New Deal in the financial crisis in 2008. And the remarkable thing is that they've actually all been largely successful or where they didn't succeed, there are good reasons that are not in the nature of a greening of the economy, but perhaps in the way that the policy instrument was designed. Now, there is no nirvana, there is no Gordian knot that you cut, but there is definitely evidence that we no longer are talking about hypotheticals here. Countries have done it yep. on virtually every sector in one form or another. What we now need to do is, is to find a global economy that doesn't give some people the benefit of, well, if you don't act on this, you can continue to produce in the old carbon pricing economy while the rest are adjusting. That just is not going to work. That's why we're also going to see something else that is important for New Zealand, the United States, India or China, which is border adjustment tariffs, countries that will not play their part in a global climate um, coalition, let's put it in those terms, 
will sooner or later face border adjustment tariffs because they will try to export to markets that are going to say, sorry. Hang on, I'll stop you there. What, what does that mean for ever, uh, border Very adjustment simple. tariffs? What uh, you have just seen China and, and the US uh, do to each other on particular exports, you could simply impose a tariff before you are allowed to import a car or a product into a, into a country, you will pay a higher tariff at the border because you are not essentially carrying the same costs as others. It's all about competitiveness. So if the United States leaves the Paris Accord, continues to increase per capita emissions, do you think a European Union will continue to have the United States export into the European market without adjusting its tariffs, which is really the logic behind this, in order to maintain a fair trade. And that is where I think we are going to see much of what will drive change in the coming years, based on where people believe a good future for them lies, will translate into economics and into economic policy. And the choices that follow from that will drive us towards what we need to achieve, which is essentially a different kind of global economy in terms of carbon emissions by 2050. And I think it is actually going to, in that sense, accelerate potentially over the next 10 years rather than slow down. Now that's pure speculation and we can spend the rest of the program speculating about this, but at least it is an equal chance that we will accelerate climate action, then actually go backwards and slow it down. Going back to what I said about trust and cooperation, I have to say, that is absolutely the suboptimal way to do this because uh, relying on the European Union, for instance, to respond, that will create tensions within the European Union. And there are a lot of us who are worried about the European Union's capacity to hold together. So there, is, there are, I think, there are real risks in effectively economic warfare using those sorts of mechanisms. I know you're not advocating that. That will just come to pass as frustration builds. That is why it seems to me we have to make a huge effort, and a small country like mine has a huge interest in this, in insisting that we keep talking and insisting that multilateral efforts continue to be promoted because we can do so much more by mobilizing the resources of an entirely global community with all of the expertise that it has than we can by breaking into blocks. And, and that, that, I think, would be um, a disaster. So we, we have to try. But uh, you're right to, to be frank with us. If we don't, that is the sort of fate that could await. You seem to be hinting at some uh, a fear of geopolitical strife. Um, the US, China um, taking different approaches, trading barbs on this. Do you have a fear that this is going to, to spill over in that way? Oh, I think inevitably a shock of the scale that we've seen does not happen without geopolitical consequences. Uh, it, it stresses all of the understandings, all of the linkages. Uh, which we've been used to relying on. And you've seen that happen between the US and China. You've seen that happen before this all broke up between the US and EU on some trade issues. You are seeing in many countries a retreat from more open democratic ways of doing business. So absolutely, I think times like this uh, pose real risks to institutions uh, and coming from a country like mine, which has been a, a, an ancient democracy in modern terms, if you like, it is very worrying to see 
good governance and democracy fraying at the edges. Crises don't, aren't in easy times for democracies. And, and as Christiania says, in that sense, I think it really is a fork in the road. Take the wrong steps and have the international order completely break apart and we could be in a much worse position to tackle all of these other issues, whether it's biodiversity, whether it's climate, uh, population displacement or whatever. Akeem, did you still want to tell Simon off or can we, can we move on? Well, only in the sense of a friendly combat. I don't think trying to correct for distortions in our global economy is economic warfare. In fact, the entire World Trade Organization and trading regime has been built very much on the notion that you want to reduce distortions. Now, we all know, and it's partly also where we find ourselves today, that yes, we made some significant progress, but frankly, the global trading regime also still carried within it many advantages for those who had more, let's say, political and economic power to exert, vested interests, and um, others who essentially had to play by the rules of um, the large players. And I think um, looking at what is fair in international trade is going to be critical to actually maintain a global economy that trades with each other. Because if unfairness continues to be the perceived reality of this globalization narrative, and let's be very clear, it has, for a large part of the last 20 to 30 years, been driven by an excessively neoclassical, neoliberal notion that the more free the trade is, the better it will be for the whole world. Well, yes, it worked for some, for some of the time, but look at where it has left us at the beginning of the 21st century. So global trade has been with us since the beginning of um, you know, history, so to speak, but today it has become extremely connected, interdependent, and I think if you want our populations, our electorates, to continue to believe in the notion that trading with one another is a good thing, then fairness is going to be extremely important. And you're not going to tolerate free riders who are basically trading at their advantage and at your expense when climate becomes the crisis that we are already beginning, it, beginning to see it become right now. So that's why I'm saying the countries individually may see themselves as wanting to game the system, so to speak. But, you know, there's far too much transparency today and the urgency to act will ensure that those who don't play in a cooperative sense, rather than just looking at competition, 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 which has really been the driving paradigm of success, it's actually collaboration, cooperation, fairness, transparency. And who knows, we may have a renaissance of globalization and trading that in the current world certainly is not the likely scenario. Okay. I agree with you and all of the things that, that you talk about there about fairness, these all require institutions to make sure that they happen. Christiania and I come from very small countries who are always, uh, frankly, prey to the depredations and self-interest of large power blocks and large economic blocks. Uh, you're, and, and, and countries have always gamed, whether it's the European Union, or whether it's China, or whether it's the US. So I, I'm just, I suppose I'm giving a small country perspective, and that's to say that I, I agree entirely with your sentiment. And the idea of free riding is exactly what we should be trying to avoid. That's what we built a multilateral system to try to protect us from we should ensure that we try to maintain okay. it. Christiana wanted to come back in there. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, um, I mean, it's, it's quite, um, quite sobering to realize that uh, we have a test of this discussion that we've just listened to right in front of us. Because um, ultimately what we're saying is that we are facing today 
more starkly than ever before this competing um, vision of the world. One is isolationist, build the walls, uh, protect myself from everybody else because everybody else is an enemy. Um, and the other is the much more collaborative, multilateral, um, cooperative approach. And, uh, and, and we have seen since uh, the rise of Trumpism in the United States and in other countries, we have seen the rise of the first, right? The isolationism. So, you know, now with COVID, uh, just the, the same thing COVID is, is doing with so many other areas of human endeavor, it's really bringing it just front and center for us. Because um, what is really fascinating is to notice that the first phase of dealing with this virus was definitely isolationist. Close down the borders, lock yourself up at home, don't go out, close the events, don't go to movies, don't go to restaurants, don't go to anywhere, you know, just absolutely build the walls around yourself. Um, and every country that did that early enough is actually in a better position today. And that is not the solution. Because the moment we begin to open up and we cannot live inside little caves forever, the moment we begin to open up, we realize we are only as safe as the least healthy person around the world. And until we get a global vaccine, we are not safe. And so if you look at vaccines from an isolationist point of view, I would love to hear the government of the United States say to France or to Israel or any country that develops an effective vaccine and that is cheap to say to them, sorry, we're not going to use the French or the Israeli or the Costa Rican or the New Zealand vaccine. We're going to wait until we develop our own because we're isolationists, right? I don't think that's going to happen. We have to, you know, now we're really being faced with accepting the fact that long-term solutions to global crises do require multilateral cooperation and collaboration of everyone. Mm -hmm. The vaccine has to be developed by someone, it has to be effective, it has to be made cheap, and it has to be accessible to all countries, especially including developing countries. Mm -hmm. And that's not gonna happen with an isolationist approach. So given that, and given the lack of international cooperation dealing with this pandemic, what confidence does it give you that our international structures are in any fit state to deal with the, the crisis of climate change? No, but that's what I mean. I think that once we get over this first crisis, you know, managing the crisis, which is bending the curve in each country, um, and many countries are getting there, others are just starting, but the solution, the long-term solution and the normalization of the economy, which will never be normal again, but let's just use that for the time being, proxy, proxy term, the normalization of the wheels of the economy will only be able to come if we have a multilateral collaborative approach to this. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So this lesson is a lesson that we're gonna have to learn whether we want to or not. Can I just add one thing here? And that is that, that I, I've made the case today that this crisis has shown up the vulnerabilities of a, a very interconnected world with very imperfect multilateral institutions. And I am worried about them, but there are two good signs, I think. We should not always see everything happening at the level of governments. Um, 
I have been enormously impressed by the contribution of philanthropy, uh, which has stepped in. There's been some really extraordinary uh, contributions in, in the COVID space uh, by uh, donors who are not government donors, but they are seeking uh, solutions. Secondly, cities. Uh, we are an increasingly urbanized world and cities are not necessarily doing what governments are doing. And cities are networked with one another. So there are other levels of human interaction uh, which work regionally and even globally. It still doesn't discount the fact, I think, that our, uh, our institutions are at risk and trust in them and their effectiveness is at risk. But there are other levels uh, at which these things can happen. Can I, to finish, bring this back to the environment and we've been talking about a lot of the secondary effects and it's been fascinating about how this may lead to a change in, in our thinking and our management but let's have a think about the more direct link and this has been uh, put forward by a number of scientists increasingly and I see Jane Goodall just recently on this. These are scientists talking about how this and other pandemics may become more frequent and more deadly unless we stop the widespread destruction of our environment. In other words, they're seeing this as a far more direct link, that the deforestation and the I don't know, exploitation of wild species has actually created this perfect storm which has led us to a pandemic. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Let's start with you on that, Akeem. Absolutely, and it comes back to something we spoke about earlier. We, we live in a time where we have to understand that things affect each other on our planet. And, you know, in the world of science, it is beginning to be called the age of the Anthropocene, where the factor of human beings and their impact on our natural systems is geologically traceable. So it is an interesting moment because... For the first time in the history of this planet, one species has, in a sense, or the human species has been able to establish itself as, well, changing the fundamental life support systems on the planet. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we also know that uh, zoonotic diseases, those diseases that jump from animals to humans, have become a very significant factor. And here, just as a matter of fact also, they don't all happen to happen in China, by the way. Um, they happen in the Middle East, we've had them in Mexico, we've had them in other parts of the world. So this is a phenomenon that we're observing. And I think what is critical is that we do recognize that nature is an invisible backbone of everything we know and take for granted about how we live every day. Clean oxygen, water that somehow doesn't come out of a tap, uh, you know, the stuff that you flush down the toilet doesn't end up you know, at the end of a toilet. I mean, it goes back into nature. So we need to look at cycles, the hydrological cycle of how we use water, how dirty water can become clean water again. These are fundamental elements that perhaps people thought, you know, 21st century science technology, we are essentially independent of nature at this time. And the opposite is actually true. We have overstressed it to the point where we are far more vulnerable than perhaps um, our ancestors were. And I think that's critical. And if you allow me one last remark, simply as a um, provocation for perhaps a conversation after this program for many, this notion that the world is not collaborating, I challenge it head on. As I sit here with you right now, the last few weeks, the international institutions, starting with the IMF, the United Nations, 
have been working 24-7, first of all, creating the only flows, and these were institutions set up for crisis that countries can borrow from. Over 90 have borrowed from the IMF. The United Nations family, as we talk here right now, is feeding over 100 million people today. Over 40 million people looked after in refugee camps. Vaccinations, delivering antiretrovirals to tens of millions of people, flying hundreds of thousands of protective kit ventilators across the world. Yes, our response is inadequate because we simply did not take seriously the scenarios that we all knew about, and now we are struggling. But I think the notion of solidarity hasn't died, nor have our institutions internationally been a complete failure, but they're found wanting because we simply did not invest enough in them. And okay, therefore our we're going to, um, we, we, are running, we are running short on time, amazingly. Um, I'm going to go to uh, Christiana and then a final word from, from Simon Upton to, to finish. Christiana. No, I just, I just wanted to um, thank Achim for, for bringing that topic up because, you know, honestly, uh, the headlines are stolen by those who don't believe in multilateralism and, and who withdraw funding from the multilateral system precisely when the multilateral system is most needed. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where the headlines go and the headlines don't go to the, uh, you know, the work in the trenches that those institutions are doing. So. Thank you, Ahim, for reminding us of that. All right, final word uh, for, for you, Simon Upton, and then we better wrap it up. Indeed, just two quick thoughts. I mean, Akim uh, is absolutely right. Solidarity hasn't died, and the UN's institutions have been delivering, but the means available to them have not been up to the challenge and the challenges will get bigger so when i see the biggest richest country on earth questioning its funding for a key institution in the middle of a crisis that does not give me confidence it's not a it's not a judgment about those institutions it's about our commitment to them look i just would finish with this point and i think we probably would all agree with this we've lived through an age where economistic thinking has dominated everything, that we have seen the economy, the performance of the economy. You know, elections won and lost on whether the GDP number was above 0.3 or above 0.1 in some cases. The economy is a subset of the environment. Everything we do and try to achieve in economies relies on the ecosystem services of the planet. And getting that priority right seems to me the key thing. Now, if COVID's done one good thing, it's demonstrated to us, it's, it's not us who are running the place, a virus, something we can't see, has actually disrupted all of our lives. And it's one of only many disruptors that are out there. So we need to just get the priorities right, get the perspective right, uh, that we are not above this planet and running it and hardening it to suit us. We have to live intelligently within the constraints it places on us. They are real, and if we live with them, we'll be a lot better off. Good place to leave it. Thank you very much, uh, Simon Upton, Christiana Figueres, and Akim Steiner for your thoughts today and for joining us. After the Virus is produced by RNZ, by me, Guy Espiner, and Justin Gregory. Claire Eastham Farrelly is the visual director, Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin are the executive producers. 
You can also watch the series on video, so head over to rnz.co.nz slash podcasts to catch that and for plenty of other great content. All RNZ podcasts are free to listen to and ad-free as well on rnz.co.nz and on the RNZ app. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.